What I saw made my heart stop, then soar. This is Allie Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 14, Oil Paint and Tears. We met in the alcove that housed the ice machine on our floor. Aranka and Finton weren't there. I couldn't find them. I was relieved. I didn't trust them after they had spent so much time on the flights with the professors. We should go ahead without them. Okay, we can fill them in later. Look at the logo on the ice machine. Skyvolt. Glacial ice for your refreshment. In case we didn't already know... The Grigoris have their fingerprints all over this place and every other place we've been. Okay, we need to know why they've brought us here three days before the constellation is supposed to line up. Especially when I overheard the professors say we're here for two days. We also need to know why we're here, as in, why us? What do we have to do with whatever they're up to? Shoot, my mouth is so dry. I wish I had some money for a sky vault. What? You don't? Let's see if we can find out where the van went and what it was doing. Any ideas how? The building must have a service corridor or service level. Maybe a bunch of them since the building is so large. Let's try the elevator and see if we can find something. Remember, the elevators will have security cameras, so we can't spend too much time trying different buttons. Or maybe we can. What would be more normal than a bunch of kids goofing around in the elevator in the world's tallest building? Don't sweat it. As long as we don't look like we're trying to get somewhere in particular, we'll be fine. Maybe. We stared at the panel in the elevator. Several buttons had an asterisk after the floor number, Maybe those buttons would open doors in the service area. Delani moved her hand in a circle, choosing a button at random, and clicked on it. 66, asterisk. The elevator glided into motion, but instead of just going vertically to the 66th floor, it added a little horizontal movement backwards. We all gave each other a, did you feel that? Look. The doors behind us opened onto a beige cinder block wall with 66 stenciled in black on it. A couple of large carts heaped with laundry stood nearby. What just happened? The service areas must be inside the building, in an inner call. The rooms with the windows and the gorgeous views are on the outside ring. It's quite clever. But why not just have the rear doors open to the rear? Why the extra movement? I'm not sure I understand your question. I mean, what is the elevator going past 
to get to the service corridor. The outer ring is where people live and work and look out the windows, and some floors have a service corridor. But we just felt the elevator move through some space to get there. What is the elevator passing when it moves horizontally? Let's try another floor and see if it happens again. We watched as she randomly selected another. The elevator swooshed forward, then swiftly down, then backwards again. It opened to a similar beige hallway. The chalky smell of clay and limestone hit me. I saw a couple of bags marked cement propped against the wall. Kaya's right. The elevator is passing over the top of something or through some space to get to the inner service areas on these floors. I wonder what we're gliding over. Or under. Where do the asterisk floors start? At the ground level. They seem to occur every dozen or so floors, all the way to the top. See? 163 asterisk. That's not actually the top. There are another 46 levels past the top story. They're not called stories because they're only for maintenance. No, your enemy. There aren't any buttons for those floors. I wonder how people get up there. Maybe the space between the regular corridor and the service corridor has something to do with how you get to the maintenance floors. They can't possibly get to them from outside the building. Actually, people wash the windows up there. They dingle from ropes. The windows on the lower floors have moving platforms. The spire and top floors are handled by specialists who worked on super skyscrapers. We all have our gifts, I guess. Can we get off the topic of aerial exposure at high altitude for Neath's sake? Let's go to the top asterisk and see if we can figure out anything when we're up there. Maybe if we listen closely, we'll be able to hear something when we go through that extra space. Wait, who's got their votas on them? Ever since Josh had that experience in Orkney, I carried mine around in my pocket. I brought mine out. Delani and Josh got theirs out, too. Delani and I noticed that our votives are much warmer since we arrived in this building. They glow brighter, too. There's a frequency here mine is responding to, like it did in Orkney. I can hear yours all humming as well. Zia, when you said listen... It made me wonder if the votives respond differently depending on where we are in the building. Push the button. Let's listen and watch when we get to 163 asterisk. The elevator accelerated and brought us swiftly up to the 163rd floor. I held my breath as it next made its now familiar horizontal glide toward the service corridor. Sure enough, the votives momentarily glowed brighter as we passed through the space between the outer hall and the service corridor. Josh's eyes lit up, and he nodded. It's a little louder there. The door opened to the usual beige and cinder block scene. This time, though, against the wall was a cart holding masonry tools, trowels, buckets, a level, and a hammer. I jumped off the elevator and motioned to the others to join me. What are you doing? Something's going on here. Come on. No one else came. I think they were trying to decide whether to leave me behind or yank me back onto the elevator. The door started to close, and Josh stuck his hand out to make them open again. Okay. 
He stepped out into the hallway, followed by the others. What are you thinking? There was cement in the corridor on the 39th floor. I thought that was random laundry on the 66th floor, but now I think I saw work gloves and drop cloths. They're building something in here somewhere. They could be redecorating or renovating. A building this big is probably always under some kind of repair or renovation. Mm, the building is too new. And who redecorates with masonry, especially when every public area we've seen is glass and chrome? They're making something out of bricks and cement. There goes our ride. We're stuck. We're not stuck. We just have to push the button and wait for the elevator to come back. Which gives us time to see if we can see what's in the space between the elevator door and the side that opens onto the public halls. How? We just have to pry the elevator door open, and we should be able to see what's across there, right? I'm pretty sure they have safety features in place so people can't open the door and fall into the elevator shaft if the elevator isn't there. So... If someone is building something inside this building using bricks and mortar... Or stones. What if they're using stones, too? I'm not sure what I'm getting at, but isn't it weird that the votives are lighting up like we've never seen before? And the frequencies are more intense. The votives are stones, right? Small, carved stones. Yeah. And remember how Josh noticed his reacted to another stone? Uh-huh. What if it's other stones the votives are responding to? Could the votives be useful in a building project? Maybe they could be decorations. They're pretty small. It would take a lot of them to build anything of any size. Dr. Kaleo said there are thousands of them, and they've been found all over the world. Someone's coming. I grabbed Alani by the hand, and we all ran. Unfortunately, Delani, Josh, and I ran one way, and Neith, Zia, and Rachel went the other. The hallway we went in was a dead end. There were no doorways except one at the end of the hallway. It was a plain, windowless metal door, painted brick red, with a stainless steel doorknob and a small panel about the size of a cell phone, the same color as the door, but its texture was different, glossy. Josh tried the doorknob. Nothing. I wanted to see what was on the little panel and had to get up on my tiptoes to look directly at it. But when I did, it came to life. It went black, then made a flash of white light like it was taking a picture. Then I realized, not a regular picture, the kind of picture the eye doctor took when I was having my retina examined. I blinked to clear away the residual glare. Holy cow, that's a retina scanner. That's a door opener. I was glad my weird retinas were good for something. We heard the voices of people turning into the corridor behind us and hurried into a dark and airless space. It wasn't large, we could tell by the way we could hear our own breathing and the sound coming back to us like it didn't have far to travel. Airlock? Decontamination chamber? But why? 
The wall to the left of us slid away, and we could see a small vestibule. The vestibule opened onto another area we couldn't yet see, but could see that it was well lit. I peeked around the corner. What I saw made my heart stop, then soar. Kieran was standing in front of us. Behind him was a large easel that held a canvas, a painting by Monet I know I had seen at the Art Institute of Chicago. On the last field trip we had taken there from school, it had been replaced with a sign that said, Removed for Conservation. Next to the easel was another one with a half-finished copy of the painting. Kieran was holding a paintbrush. Our eyes met. Before I could call out, he glanced up toward the corner of the ceiling. My eyes followed his gaze. I saw the large camera mounted there, pointed into the area where Kieran was working. I dropped my eyes to his feet and noticed the long chain that connected the shackles around his right foot to a ring in the wall. My eyes welled with tears, both from joy and the pain of seeing him held captive. Then Kieran started singing. Yep, I said singing. Stop, don't come any closer. I can't believe you came, you found me. He sounded like an English version of the operas my parents used to listen to, where a big musical number with a lot of music and a lot of people singing on top of each other comes to an end, but one of the characters goes on singing all by himself. Not a song, but words with notes that go higher and lower. It always seems strange to me when a person sang like that when they could have just spoken. Why are you singing? I'm singing because they don't listen in here, they watch. It was weird, but it sounded kind of nice to hear singing, especially in such a depressing environment. They're watching me on a monitor, but they can't see where you're standing. They can tell by my face that I'm singing. So I hope they think I'm singing to myself like I often do and not talking to you. It made me want to sing back, my speaking voice sounding rather plain. Why don't they listen? It was like Kieran and I were playing a children's game called Pretend We're in an Opera. I almost giggled. Kieran smiled. They don't like my singing. But it's nice. Thank you. But Nephilim can't take it. Too melodious for them. Too harmonious. Too harmonious. They deal in discord, harmony, and melody. Remind them on a cellular level of heaven. Somehow it resonates in them in a way they find unbearable. Why do they let you sing if they can't stand it? Hey, Diva, don't get carried away. We don't have much time. How are you? I finally got to the important part. 
I'm okay. They told me I was lucky because I had a gift more valuable to them than my blood. I'm one of their forgers. I make them money. More valuable than your blood? That's what they're doing with the other Elliot. Do you know what I'm talking about, Elliot? Yes, we do. You, me, the others, we are Elliot. Some of the other students were brought here too. They're not as lucky as me. The Gregories are harvesting Elliot blood. They think it will keep them from disintegrating. They also use... Antimony. They use antimony to keep their angelic and human natures from pulling apart. They must think Elliot blood is better. They take it from the Elliot they have imprisoned through there. He motioned with his head toward a doorway at the end of the room. And give it to the ones they call the peerless. The peerless injected and use antimony only when they're running low on Elliot blood. We looked at the door. Above was written, Nuscantor ut moriantor. I would have to ask Neath what it meant. The ones in charge here talk in front of me. They think because I'm chained there's no risk. Who would I tell? They told me they would let me copy paintings instead of having my blood extracted. If I refused, they would make me watch as they took all the blood from two Elliot. Two deaths of my own refusal. The Elliot die eventually, but if they took all their blood at once, they would die instantly. At least this way we all stay alive and hope someone will come to rescue us. And here you are. I am so sorry. We can't rescue you yet. We'll come back for you as soon as we can figure out how to get you out of here. Josh and Alani were starting to sweat from nervousness. We have to go before they find us here. We'll come back and get you and the rest out of here. I promise you are not alone. It won't be long. Josh and Alani nodded and waved. Josh put his arm around me as we ducked back into the vestibule next to the decontamination chamber. We've got to get out, now. Whoever was behind us in the hall must be coming. We'll figure this out. We will. Plus, now we know they don't like good singing. <sighs> but that only helps some of us. I've heard you sing. No Nephilim repellent there. So, how do we get out of here without going back into the hallway? You're not going to like this, but remember that breeze when we came in here? Yeah. I bet it came from this panel here. It must be an air vent, and right now, it's our best way out. Oh, boy. Someone's coming. Ready? Ready. 
I'm guessing we have about 30 seconds until the vent runs out of air. Tick-tock. I jumped feet first into the vent. My feet knocked loose a large grate, and I spilled out with a thud into a hallway after an exhilarating ride through the air vent. Josh and Alani landed in the hallway right after me. When they hit the floor, they both started laughing hysterically, giddy with relief. (laughs) We are so lucky the access panel to the air generator wasn't open when we came through, and we landed out here instead of some bone-crushing generator. What? A bone-crushing generator? (laughs) I don't know if it would crush our bones exactly, but something makes the air come up into the decontamination chamber. It must have been closed when we came through. I was counting on it. We're fine, right? Let's find the elevator and head back to the hotel. If Zia, Rachel, and Neith are all right, I'm sure they headed back there. It turned out that our indoor luge experience had only dropped us down a few floors to 112. We were able to find an elevator, but the one we got on served only floors 100 to 149 and the lobby. We would have to go all the way down to the lobby again to get on an elevator that would take us back to our floor. Elevator doors opened at the lobby level. We were greeted by the sound of Zia's voice, accompanied by a piano played by a man in a tuxedo with slicked back black hair and mustache. Zia had changed somehow into a glittery silver floor-length evening gown. Neith was sitting in a lounge chair near the piano with a red drink and a large snifter, bobbing his head appreciatively as she sang. I sniffed. Neith's drink was a Shirley Temple. Rachel was sitting next to Neith, pouring liquids of various colors from elegant little crystal cordial glasses into a hurricane, watching bubbles rise and their colors swirl as she poured. Zia caught our eyes. We sat down in the nearest group of empty chairs and waited for her to finish the song. As it came to an end, lounge patrons burst into applause. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to take a little break now, but I'll be back soon. She took Neith by the elbow, and they came over to where we were sitting. Rachel followed closely behind. You're okay. You're singing in the lounge at the Burj Khalifa. Cool, right? But how? Well, it was pretty great. After we realized we lost you guys, we got stuck at a dead end with the locked metal door. A man with a maintenance uniform came up to us and asked what we were looking for. Then Zia sang a line from an old song, Someone to Watch Over Me. Why? I panicked. It's like a nervous tick for me. When I get nervous, the first thing that comes to my mind are old song lyrics, things I used to sing when I was little and talent shows to make my grandparents happy. It gets better. The man asked, do you know somewhere over the rainbow, honey? Which I do. Another talent show classic. I started to sing it. The man gave us this huge smile and said, You're late. Come this way. He led us down here, gave Zia the gown to change into, and says, You're on in five. She's been singing everything she knows from Broadway musicals. The crowd loves it. She's making great tips, and I get free snacks and drinks. Delicious. You got lucky. 
We've got stuff to tell you, but you've got fans to entertain, and we don't want to get caught out past the curfew. Suit yourself. We'll be up after another set. At breakfast, we looked around for Fintan and Aranka. There was no sign of them, and no mention of their absence. I thought of the area where Kirin was being held. Could they have been taken to the Elliot holding area? I suddenly felt guilty we hadn't gone looking for them before. I decided to hope they were still okay. After breakfast, Dr. Kaleo announced we would take a tour of the building. We are aware, however, that some of you have already done some exploring on your own. My hands went cold, and I fought the urge to wrinkle my forehead. Maybe they were talking about Fintan and Aranka? But Zia spoke up. I'm sorry, Dr. Kaleo. The urge to perform was simply too great. When I got the offer to sing in the lounge, I felt I couldn't say no. What was she doing? Trying to throw Dr. Kaleo off? Taking one for the team? Seeing what Dr. Kaleo knew? Dr. Kaleo flashed a cold, empty smile at Zia. We are aware of your need to use your considerable talent. So, Dr. Gregory and I are releasing you from the program. But, but Dr. Kaleo, I just, I never meant to, I, what? You misunderstand, Zia. This is not punishment. We have been contacted by Pietro Mutati, vocal director of La Scala in Milan. We are releasing you to begin training for their chorus immediately. But but the program... The program has done its work for you. I promise our young scholars that we will help them fulfill their potential, and you have. It is time for you to greet your destiny. Wow. Um, thank you so much. This this is my dream. I can't believe you are doing this for me, especially since neither you nor Dr. Kaleo have actually ever listened to me sing. Zia looked at Neith, then the rest of us. Neith and Delani were smiling, but tears welled in their eyes too. I wondered if this was some kind of Gregory trick, and how we could do without Zia in our efforts to figure out the puzzle we were caught up in. Maybe I just should have been happy for her instead of feeling like she was abandoning us when we needed her most. A limo is waiting. Say goodbye. Your things are already packed. Zia wiped her eyes, then hugged Rachel, Neith, Delani, Josh, then me. She whispered in my ear, Don't trust them and remember the power of harmony. Now, Kaya, don't wrinkle your forehead. Your aunt was right. It makes you look ancient. A GYSP security brute appeared, apparently to usher Zia from the room. Zia turned to leave, but then turned back and said quickly and quietly to Neith, but loudly enough that I could hear, I'm just sorry I never got to sing for you at the top of this tower. My voice could carry forever from up there. The goon took Zia by the elbow and they left the room. I looked at Neith. He looked at me and shrugged his shoulders. Then a tear slid down his cheek. We were given a 15-minute break before our tour began. We huddled over the Belgian waffle station. 
I told Neith, Josh, Rachel, and Alani what Zia had whispered to me, then asked Neith, What was that about singing for you at the top of this building? That would be impossible for you, right? You couldn't stand it with your fear of heights. Yeah, it makes no sense. That must be why she said it, to get our attention. She wanted to emphasize what she said next, that her voice would carry forever from up there. Huh. Josh, you said this building has a radio antenna at the top. Yes, it does. So, who is trying to communicate what? That's what we need to find out. Remember the power of harmony. I thought about Kieran's words. The Gregory deal in disharmony, he had said. I thought about our time in the church and the terribly discordant noise Zia had made when the dome's space was interrupted by the latter. I thought about how we were now in the world's tallest radio communications building, but I had no idea what it meant. Then I remembered to ask Neith about the words above the door where Kieran was being held. I wrote the words down on a piece of paper and handed it to him. What does this mean? Where did you see this? Why? What does it mean? Nus cantor ut moriantor? They are born in order to die. We need to figure this out. Fast. is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whiffenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whiffenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 14 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, David Merrill as Josh, Aya Fuad as Zia, Rachel Hunter as Rachel, Henry Mitchell Bebelheimer as Kieran, Jenny Ovenstone-Smith as Dr. Kaleo, and Josiah Dykstra as Dr. Grigori. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend so they can enjoy it too. We'll be back soon with episode 15.